Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Colorfully decorated, hand-painted pianos have recently been added to some of our city's public spaces as part of Pianos for Peace. We'll hear about this year's festival and the organization's outreach from musician and founder Malek Jandali. First, before YouTube and online video streaming platforms, there was MTV, music television. The channel revolutionized the way we viewed music and expanded the music industry in an entirely new way. Tabitha Soren was a popular reporter for MTV in the 1990s. The former journalist has since pivoted from news to photography and gained artistic recognition. Soren's new exhibition will open Friday at the Jackson Fine Art Gallery. She sat down recently with City Lights producer Summer Evans over Zoom to talk about her body of work. During your time at MTV News, you got to interview some renowned musicians as well as politicians. And when I was doing my research, I came across the MTV segment that you did on the Seattle grunge music scene in the 1990s. Oh my gosh, I mean, you got to interview Soundgarden and Nirvana and... I mean, anybody that was coming out of Seattle at the time, it was incredible to watch. And you guys even talked about the history of how Seattle music has been around with Jimi Hendrix. And you got to talk to Jimi Hendrix's father, which was really cool. <laughs> I, I have so little memory of any of that, but I'm glad that I'm glad that you're impressed. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I mean, so does that feel like a lifetime ago? It feels like my, you know, my first career. I, I was a cub reporter. And I was a perfect person to talk to 20-year-old musicians because I was 20 years old. I had a very straight news background. So when I was sent to talk to politicians, I, did, I didn't have a ton of experience because I was only 24, but I had been working at, in journalism since I was 18. I went to NYU specifically to 
be in the media. I knew what I wanted to do from the get-go. And so as soon as I got there, I started working at CNN when I wasn't in class. I really loved the mix of music and politics. I think that most people are interested in more than one thing. And I understand the benefits of having a beat as a journalist and becoming a, a very deep expert in a particular topic. But I also felt like as a job, when I got tired of politicians giving me the runaround and not giving me a straight answer or quite often just straight out lying, it was really fun. It was a nice antidote mentally to go and talk to musicians, which often, you know, they weren't exactly super articulate about their music or, you know, sometimes with art, it's really hard to put into words. There was definitely effort when I was interviewing musicians as well, but it was a nice balance of two things I felt very passionately about politics and music. And I still feel passionately about both of those. Mm -hmm. And you were very instrumental in shaping and pushing MTV News to focus on youth issues and more serious topics, correct? I was instrumental in having MTV turn their attention to politics. It wasn't the first time they had done so. I think maybe four years before I started, they ran a person for president as sort of a spoof, but his name was Randy of the Redwoods. It's this amazing comedic actor named Jim Turner. And he was just like so, so funny. But I think MTV had such a great response to their political coverage because we treated the audience with a lot of respect. And mm -hmm. Within every issue, there is a slice of it that appeals very directly and affects very directly 18 to 24 year olds. Mm -hmm. So I was able to go deeper than perhaps when I did a piece for the Today Show. I had to appeal to people my age plus the normal Today Show watchers, which, you know, go up to like age 75. I felt like my reports for the more mainstream media were kind of watered down. And they didn't really allow my personality or point of view to come through. Whereas MTV, it was just like a very easy fit. And my enthusiasm and my natural connection to the audience because of my age, you know, just generated an authenticity that I felt people responded to. Yeah. And it's crazy to think how different MTV is now. I just went on their website before this interview and it's all reality TV. And I mean, they cut back on showing music to nothing now. I have been told that it's all reality TV and they definitely were on the cutting edge of that whole trend. However, I think it's silly to blame, you know, the man, the corporation of right. MTV for reality TV covering their channel because it's the audience that determines mm -hmm. who what they what they air. So if the audience wasn't watching reality TV, it would not be the entire channel. It's a very inexpensive approach to making content for a channel, as I'm sure you know. So I, I just laugh when people complain to me about it not having music anymore, because the people who aren't complaining are watching that reality TV. <laughs> so I would say that I, I, one thing I was always very impressed by at MTV was their ability to react nimbly Mm -hmm. to what the audience wanted. They really pivoted quite a bit. We had constant big meetings about, you know, annual meetings about, they would call them light switch meetings where they were going to turn off the lights and start something new. And that was because of some, you know, marketing research or 
something that the audience decided that they wanted. And, and it was such a big company in my opinion, but it also was incredibly receptive to what the audience wanted. Yeah, no, they perfectly pivoted and who knows, maybe they'll change the name from music television to reality television. It'll be RTV. You would think. <laughs> That's a good point, actually. Yeah. Well, well I guess they, I guess they just assume that people refer to it as MTV and forget what the M stands. Right. <laughs> we we still know. <laughs> so <laughs> so at what point in your career did you decide to pivot from journalism and news into photography? Well, that is a great question. So when I finished covering my second presidential campaign in 1996 for MTV, I was very burnt out and I was awarded a fellowship at Stanford University. I went there for a year and theoretically I was supposed to become a better journalist while I was there, but instead I fell in love with photography and art history. And I spent all my time in the dark room and I thought I, when I went there that I would join sort of the documentary world. I wanted to tell longer stories. I wanted to dive deeper and get into more complicated issues like, like every single other journalist on the planet. And um, then I met all of those documentarians in the Bay Area and they all told me about how much time they spend getting grants and if they're lucky, they get, you know, 15 people at a film festival watching their work. And I just thought, wow, that that seems crazy. If I'm going to have no audience, I'd rather just deal with one frame at a time. So in my mind, it didn't it wasn't a huge transition for the work that I was doing because I was shooting 30 frames a second and I just decided to shoot one at a time. Obviously, the public aspect to it was very different. But in fact, I think that I'm quite an introvert. And I just had this skill set that I had developed from being in a military family, growing up, moving around all the time and telling my story to new people and learning their stories to try to fit in. And that made a very good reporter. But I didn't really have time till I was older to figure out if I was actually somebody who wanted to be recognized on the street and wanted to talk to strangers and wanted to deal with the people who assumed that they know who I am and what I care about based on something they saw on television. So I realize it's almost un-American to take yourself off TV, but for me, it was emotionally the right thing. And now you're telling stories through photographs, a different medium, but still a lot of the same skill sets that you need in journalism, but as a photographer. Yes. You know, Summer, I think you're one of the few people who can understand easily the two things meet. I th the fine art world is very different from uh, the journalism world, but I have over time, I've been doing this now for 15 years, over time I have found the people in the art world who are my people. They're often art historians or museum curators or academics. Um, there is a very fancy sort of uh, art fair world. And that's, that's the one that is the most trying for me. And it's the most exhausting. But what I love about working with photography is that the gray areas of life, the complexity that surrounds us, the nuance, all of that stuff, I wasn't really able to fit into a who, what, when, where, and why two minute mm -hmm. journalism report. Photography allows me 
to include the gray area, the, the parts that don't have a yes or no answer. And um, it's also an invitation, you know, I don't determine how the piece is interpreted. I'm not telling people what the facts are. I'm presenting an image and hoping that they are invited to figure out like how they intersect with this meaning. Most of my work is, you know, it includes metaphor and is about more than just the precise moment that I hit the shutter. I'm not a documentarian. I very rarely do just straight photography. There are a lot of people who do that really well, but that's not really my work. I'm much more interested in the sublime and having my work be a model of experience rather than a reflection of a particular event. Mm. Well, let's talk about this exhibition, Surface Tension, that's on view at Jackson Fine Art Gallery. There's three collections that are on view within this exhibit. And one of those is Surface Tension. What inspired this one in particular? Well, I would say that this exhibit is so exciting to me because it does have three bodies of work in it. That rarely happens in a gallery. And really that was um, Anna and Coco at Jackson Fine Arts idea. They felt like they could fill the entire space with my work. In each body of work, I'm trying to visualize a psychological state. And they often are sort of um, supported by a lot of research and studies and the, the things that I, the sort of methodological investigative tools that I use during my time in journalism. But the end result, the, the visual and the process is quite different for each body of work. It would be tough to put them all in one room. But the way the gallery at Jackson Fine Art is, as you probably know, is that there are three separate rooms. So they, they're not going to com be competing with each other. I thought that was a great idea. And it's never happened with my work before. And it's so exciting. I spent <laughs> half my childhood in the South and I've never shown my work there. So the High Museum just acquired two pieces, but they haven't been shown yet. I mean, it's, I'm excited about that as well. I love the, the idea of being part of their collection. But to have people who... I grew up with be able to come to the show is very exciting. Yeah, well, we're happy to have you in Atlanta. I'm going back to the surface tension collection. So these are images with fingerprints that are left on top of the photos that you've taken. And what most people usually loathe about leaving fingerprints on their iPhone or iPad, you embraced it with these photos. And um, it's funny, as I look at this Zoom screen right now, I'm kind of forgetting that there are fingerprints on my computer and your eye just doesn't really analyze it until maybe you get a glare or it's a dark room, you turn off your monitor, you know, and you kind of see it coming through. Why did you want the audience to both see the fingerprints and the photos simultaneously rather than seeing through the fingerprints? For surface tension, I was very interested in what the fingerprints represented. Traces of touch are all over our devices. And so in my mind, they're not just fingerprints, they're signs of life. I guess I am guilty of, I'm, I'm assuming there might be other people listening who are also feel ambivalent about this, but how much time am I spending touching my devices instead of my loved ones? Mm. I really do feel like there is an opportunity cost to scrolling through these feeds for social media, I guess. Even if you're not on social media, though, you live in the world 
that these devices have created. So I feel like surface tension really captures the atmosphere of our time. No, it definitely made me think. I'm like, wow, I spend way too much time on my phone looking at the world and the news that's happening and not really you know, living in the world as much as I could be. It's like when we feel sorry for these causes that are happening internationally, you know, other than a like button, what are you doing to help the community in the world that you live in instead of just through the medium of a phone? I think you've hit the nail on the head. I think that these devices have us on our best days think about the way care fights distance. So technology amplifies these feelings about the floods in India and global warming and the fires in California and you know extreme police force against black and brown people. But is our soul and heart really set up for this barrage every single morning of all of those things? Are we really set up to absorb every single solitary bad thing that's happened in the world overnight. I feel like I wake up and the day seems like a great day and then I open my phone. <laughs> you know? yeah. And then all bets are off. I'm not anti-technology, but it does make you feel like there's this joyless urgency in our day-to-day -day lives because of it. Fine art photographer and former journalist, Tabitha Soren speaking with City Lights producer Summer Evans. We'll return with more of their conversation in just a moment. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Great to have you along. If you are just joining us, we've been listening to the acclaimed photographer and former journalist Tabitha Soren speak with City Lights producer Summer Evans. Soren's new exhibition opens Friday at the Jackson Fine Art Gallery. And here, she explains the process she used for capturing the show's images. I was shooting using a 19th century technology called a view camera, and it really was the best way to record all the tiny 21st century details on my screen. All of these details, when I, I blow them up really large so that even the things that eyes can't see in real life are visible. 
And I also had the fortunate coincidence to have my son going through puberty at the same time I was working on it. So his hands, when he used my iPad, got very sweaty and that really helped the light grab those shiny, glistening parts. As once the show opens, you'll see that the scale in this case is really important. The other reason I use the view camera was not only to have an eight by 10 inch negative to work with, which allows you, if I do get a hot spot or a glare, to crop a little of it out and then make it, you know, the image is still basically very huge negative, but it's kind of, I, I liked the, the friction between the 19th century technology, analog photography and, and the latest technology of, of the iPad. I feel like it's important to remember that when photography came into the world, it was viewed with terrible skepticism and it was accused of weaving fictions about individual lives and historical events and obviously you know the internet and technology is uh slapped with the same reputation so mm-hmm. i liked that parallel yeah definitely and for those unfamiliar with the view camera that's one of those large format cameras that kind of inverts the image that you're seeing I bet most people are familiar with the picture of Ansel Adams or Carlton Watkins mm-hmm. underneath a black cover and a big boxy camera. It's the size of you know someone's head, basically. But mm-hmm. it, there's nothing fancy about it. It's not. It doesn't make me a genius having used it. It's just about whether that process or that technology serves the work. And in this case, it really allowed me to have much more surface area to blow up than a phone. And I should say that all the pictures are uh, appropriated. All the background pictures are appropriated. And I was reshooting that background with fingerprints on my view camera. So there's, there's no layering or, you know, obviously like there's mm-hmm. some Photoshopping happening because it's a digital print. So there's always adjustments you have to make, but it's a very simple process. Mm-hmm. And that, that was a question I had was, were these photos that you took and then you had them up on an iPad and then took a photo of your photo or? They are all screenshots of images that were sent to me either by text or email, or they came up in one of my social media feeds or my news feeds or, you know, people sharing their vacation photos with me. And I, of course, would always ask permission to use them if it's somebody I know, or I would track the person down that, again, brought in my reportorial skills <laughs> of trying to, you know, reverse engineer where this came from. And sometimes they were professional photographers. And in those cases, I bought the license from Getty or Reuters or AP or mm-hmm. wherever they came from. I would say the majority of them are people that I interacted with personally. One of the very early images was sent to me from downstairs in my house from my daughter who was too lazy to walk up the stairs to kiss me goodnight or she thought it'd be clever if she just blew a kiss into her ipad snapped a photo of it and then texted it to me upstairs so when i got that to me i was starting this process and i was learning all about the importance of touch and the cognitive Mm -hmm. impairment that these phones create and of course i'm struggling with my children using uh, devices more than I want them to be. Mm-hmm. But then I don't get a good night kiss. Like that just <laughs> seemed like beyond the pale. So at that point I marched downstairs, but at yeah. the same time, she gave me such a beautiful gift, you know, that, that picture is so successful of her blowing a kiss to me mm. and whatever the, the motions over the image were, I, I'm not, I don't really remember 
who used the iPad to create the fingerprints, but they look like bubbles. And so the fact that she's blowing me a kiss uh-huh. and then there are all these bubbles over the top of it, I just was, I felt like that was a gift from the art gods. Mm. That was actually my first thought. I had to look at the photo twice to see, oh, are those bubbles like edited in there? But then I noticed, oh no, they're fingerprints. But that's such a sweet image. So that's your daughter. I love that. My lazy daughter. (laughs) So these photos span from 2013 to 2021. When you were selecting the photos that you wanted to have in this exhibition, were they emblematic of the times? Because I saw like there were some protest photos from 2020 and 2021, photo of a glacier in 2019. Is that symbolic of like global warming? It can be. It's a vacation shot from somebody who's on a boat off the coast of Chile, which, and those glaciers are melting, but it's also an example of, I think something I'm guilty of too, is, you know, saving up money to go to a beautiful place and then spending all my time behind a lens instead of like having a direct experience. I feel like we have gotten used to mediated experiences and that picture of the glacier on vacation seems that way to me, but it's also very much about global warming and that's how most people interpret it. In terms of which images ended up at Jackson Fine Art, I would say that Coco and Anna were the real drivers of those selections. So it's hard for me to have a hands-off approach and I definitely lobbied for certain pictures versus others, but there are so many to choose from with surface tension that it's, I'm happy that you know new images are going to be seen. And in this case, some of their choices are not the ones that I've been showing lately. So that's exciting. There is also another body of work that I wanted to talk about. What inspired your collection, Relief? And how did you make these photographs distressed and look 3D? Relief is a body of work that has never been shown before. So its debut is at Jackson Fine Art next week. And I'm so excited about it. Honestly, it goes against almost everything I've been taught in photography. Certainly, you spend a lot of time handling your art in a very pristine way. I use white gloves. I pick the pieces up by the corner. You don't want them dinged. When I make gelatin silver prints, you know, I make sure that they are archival and that they sit in the chemicals for the perfect amount of time. And sometimes they're selenium tones, so they'll last, you know, even longer. And all of a sudden I found myself with a hammer and a nail and a pellet gun shooting holes through (laughs) beautiful (laughs) landscapes and portraits. It just seemed really strange. But I think my interest in distressing the photos was directly connected to my previous body of work, which we just discussed called surface tension. So I, mm-hmm. I, I had a screen, um, I had a surface on top of those background images, that surface of the haptic language of the fingerprints. And all of that information that I researched about technology creating cognitive impairment made me want to get away from the computer and do something with my hands. And the result is relief. So I carve these pieces, I burn them, I blast them with a pellet gun. I paint on some of them. I'm trying to create tactile interventions in the photograph surface. So surface tension had a surface created by fingerprints on top of that device. But in this case, I'm actually changing the surface of the paper. 
And what does that require? That requires a paper that's super, super thick. So I'm taking traditional images of landscapes and portraits and trying to violate the representational spirit of photography. You know, I do think that life is more complicated than black and white. And I think that um, when you look at a photograph, it's natural to go, well, who is that? And what is that? And where are mm. they? But what I would like to do with these interventions is get in the way of that thinking and have people explore what's beyond visible truth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, what a cool concept to be able to not just feel photograph like internally, but physically feel the photograph, even though you don't want people to be touching your photograph in the exhibit. But that's the special gift that you get to do at home after you buy one. <laughs> exactly. The other thing that it goes against is this, this conventional wisdom of the decisive moment. I mean, that's a Henri Cartier-Brazon idea that every photographer I know, you know, just worships that there's this moment you sit on the corner and, and have a camera around your neck and just wait for the man to jump over the puddle, for example, and mm -hmm. wait for the light to be right. And I think as a woman, I, I never found my place in that process of photography. I had three kids. I can't sit on the corner and wait for things to happen in front of me. It's mm -hmm. hard for me to drive around and leave children behind and just roam until I find a great um, landscape. Mm -hmm. So with these, I can take my work and then go into the studio and get away from that gendered process of the man with the camera around their neck and and you know make something that is emotional that and 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 slow it's it's also an antidote to sort of the hustle and the fast pace of our lives and i think that by taking a landscape or a portrait and then putting a scan on it some of the things are just little beads from my kids that they had around the house or i pulled grass out from the backyard and scanned it and then put it on top of the picture and then after that I carve into those places, I do feel like um, the meaning of the original image becomes entirely new. Well, I believe that you've done a beautiful job at that. Another body of work that I wanted to touch upon is your collection running. How did you prompt these subjects? Because I read that they weren't models. No, um, no, no. How did you prompt them? That is a really good question. You know, I would say for the running work, I asked the people who were not, they were not athletes, runners, or models, and they didn't have to run for a really long time. They just had to sort of do wind sprints because I could only focus on a particular part of the frame. Mm -hmm. And I started out shooting film, so it was even harder back then. But I asked the runners to think about a big challenge in their life, a turning point, something where they felt like they had they might have a little control over the situation and, and try to run to something or run away from something. But I would say that I'm not a director and that my instructions really didn't help them. I think mainly what they were thinking about was not falling. Although when they did fall, that made a great pace too. Mm -hmm. um, because I, the, the work started out to be about the fight or flight response, but really, um, it's, it's also about, you know, you know, falling down and picking yourself up and 
continuing on. And that's timeless. That's a, you know, an everyday pursuit for most of us. So I think that what was, what I didn't expect was that my direction to them wasn't going to be all that useful, but the lack of self-consciousness that is created in the subject by having to do this running motion over and over and over again until the dumb photographer gets it right, really allowed them to relax in front of the camera and forget they were having their picture taken, if you will. A model, it would have been faster. They would have been you know, more obviously natural in front of the camera than the people I used, but I'm not really interested in any sort of ideal beauty. Tabitha Soren photographer and former journalist. Her exhibition will open Friday at the Jackson Fine Art Gallery and remains on view through December 23rd. Tomorrow, she will be in conversation with Darius Himes at the Atlanta History Center. And Tabitha Soren will give another artist talk at the Jackson Fine Art Gallery on Saturday. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Colorfully decorated, hand-painted pianos have recently been installed in some of our city's public spaces. And coming up, the founder of Pianos for Peace tells us why. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Pianos for Peace is one of Atlanta's largest public art projects. Composer and pianist Malek Jandali created the festival in 2015. Each year, the organization aims to spread the message of peace by placing colorfully decorated pianos painted by local artists in various public spaces across the city. The festival is underway now through September 22nd. Joining me now via Zoom is the founder, Malek Jandali. Welcome back to City Lights. Thank you so much, and uh, greetings and peace to you and to the audience. Please tell us about the mission of Pianos for Peace and the purpose of the festival? You know, our mission is very simple. It's peace. Uh, together, you know, we try to uplift lives and transform communities uh, by making the arts accessible to all, to everyone. This is the largest symphony for peace in our city. Everybody is welcome to come and play on this piano, enjoy them, film them, take advantage of all these amazing locations and the permission that we got. The purpose of it is to bring unity back to our community. See, Lewis, you know, the word community has unity in it. So we're just trying to unite all communities through the magic of music and the soft power of the arts. Uh, even though it's so much fun having all these colorful 
pianos painted by local and international artists, the real impact, and you know, pianos for peace is all about impact. The real impact is, as you mentioned, after the 22nd, which is the uh, closing ceremony at the uh, Fulton County government building featuring the African American Philharmonic Orchestra and honoring two amazing women at that day. After the closing ceremony, we take all these pianos and donate them to uh, Title I schools, nursing homes, community organizations, healthcare facilities, and any other organization in need. That's where the impact of Pianos for Peace lasts for the entire year. And then we engage volunteer artists, our ambassadors for peace, and our year-long programming. We have the art healing program, bedside performances. We have the arts education program in partnership with the Fulton County and the Atlanta public school systems. And we also have our partnership with the city and Fulton County Arts and Culture to engage artists and the amazing talents in creating these pianos for next year. How are the artists selected to paint the pianos? You know, we do have an application on our website, pianosforpeace.org. We review them. And then we also partner, as I mentioned, with the Fulton County Arts and Culture, with the Mayor's Office of Cultural Affairs, the City of Atlanta, also the Atlanta Public School System. So it's, it's, it's a symphony for peace. It's together, you know, we're singing all together, giving local and international artists the opportunity to design and paint these pianos. Uh, they submit their uh, applications, we review them, we select them, and then we commission them. You know, being an artist myself, uh, Louis, I truly believe that artists should be compensated, even if it's a small honorarium, because artists don't live on solar power. <laughs> no, they don't. <laughs> are there guidelines on what the artists are allowed to paint? Very limited. I mean, we do have some guidelines, of course, but, you know, it's all about the freedom of expressions. You know, we don't, we limit it to art and colors. Uh, we try to avoid any text. Uh, you know, we do have some guidelines regarding protecting the piano itself. So don't paint the soundboard and avoid the keys and the pedals. You know, it's all listed in our application. Are the pianos themselves donated to the festival? Almost half of our pianos are purchased through different dealers and uh, organizations. And we do have around 45% of our pianos being donated from the community. The problem with the donated pianos, usually they are low quality and they need a lot of attention, like repair and tuning and broken keys, broken hammers. So we really um, try to be economical and efficient in selecting the pianos for the festival and for the schools. Malik, please tell us about your personal journey as a musician. You know, I started as a classical pianist and during COVID when uh, all the concert halls got dark and uh, basically touring vanished, <laughs> I focused and switched mainly into composition. So I'm now a composer and resident at two major institutions. One of them is Queen's University of Charlotte and then the second is the uh, Qatar Museums, where they have seven museums. I'm trying to preserve my culture. The culture of Mesopotamia is a global culture that embraces all religions, all cultures throughout history. And as an American artist, it's my duty to preserve it and present it at the highest artistic level. You mentioned donating the pianos after the festival pianos. Piece. 
What is the impact of having one of these pianos accessible in an underserved community? That's our focus, is the underserved communities, especially Title I schools, uh, where the arts and especially music, with all respect, has been hijacked from these amazing talents and young talents and students. So what we are trying to do is to fill the gap in partnership with the Atlanta public school system and the city and Fulton County Arts and Culture to bring back these instruments and build a music program around it. You know, you have to come and join us one day and see the amazing eyes and, and, and the uh, astonishing, you know, expressions of the kids when they receive this colorful piano. I mean, the joy and the magic and the happiness and we even engaged the Atlanta Police Department. We call them peace officers rather than police officers. And uh, we invite them to join us in our Symphony for Peace to change the narrative and rebuild the trust between certain communities and the law enforcement. So it has many angles, but the arts education is our focus. We engage our volunteer artists to go volunteer at these schools. I go myself, you know, I perform with a couple of uh, students orchestra here in town. Grady is one of them. So it's all about bridging the gap, doing the right thing at the right time for the right reason. It's not easy, but it is our duty to do it. And uh, as an American artist, it is an honor to uh, remind myself and the audience about our values of peace and equality, freedom and justice. And there's no better way than arts and the magic of music to do that. And... How does music education specifically contribute to peace? That's a great question. It is all about the curriculum. We developed a curriculum during COVID. First, we uh, developed it as a virtual curriculum because the schools were closed. Now we are implementing it uh, physically. Many times, music and the arts are viewed as entertainment. It is more than that. It has this magical soft power to change, change people's perspective. Myself, you know, I was born in Germany, I was raised in Syria, but with the liberal arts, with music, with my exposure through my musical journey, you become a better person. You connect with everyone as a human. You know, I mentioned the great values of Mesopotamia and American values. You elevated, you are elevated through the arts and you go to the human values and you see the entire world as one symphony with no divisions, no borders. And that's what music does. It transcends straight to your heart without anybody's permission, with no geopolitics, with no borders, with no barriers, with no walls. It unites, it heals. And I truly believe music can change people and people will change the world. And that's what we are trying to do through Pianos for Peace here in town. Malik, I know you must have many, but can you share one story with us of a student who has been positively impacted by the work of Pianos for Peace? We have so many students, amazing students and amazing stories to share about the impact. Always one particular one jumps to me for the homeless community, for example, I, I witnessed a homeless talent here in town. The guy was hesitant to touch the piano. Uh, and 
he decided to actually sit and perform. And I was listening to Chopin Polonaise in the street of Atlanta by an amazing talent. And for those few moments when I was hearing Chopin Polonaise, this human being was transformed from all the stigmas of being a homeless into an artist where everybody was enjoying his talent, his voice, and they, they were seeing him as a human, as an amazing artist. And to me, I, I wasn't sure if we were impacting him, but at that moment, he was impacting us. He was more impacting us than what we are doing. For the arts education and the students, it's an amazing impact when we donate that piano to a school that does not have a piano. The teachers, the students, you know, the joy in their eyes, it's, you have to see it. I can't describe it. Maybe I will compose music to describe it because it's just amazing. And sometimes we go very specific where a teacher will say, you know, this amazing students really need a piano to practice at home because many students go to a Marta station and underserved and go practice, imagine, in the HE home stations or College Park or any other Marta station, they take advantage of those Marta stations and it becomes their practice room. Uh, so sometimes we go very specific to a particular talent in a particular school and we donate a piano to that young talent. Well, that's what we mean by uplifting lives and transforming communities. Wonderful. Curious about the rotation of pianos. After each festival, how many are moved to make way for newly painted, newly decorated instruments for the following year? Absolutely. You know, so on average, Pianos for Peace donate around 50 pianos every year to schools and nursing homes and other deserving communities. Now, during the festival, like, for example, now we have 50 pianos for peace on display. After the festival, we keep some of the pianos permanently. For example, we have seven Marta stations where the pianos for peace are there on display throughout the year because we do have that special partnership and program going on with Marta. Same thing at the King Center or the museum, Spelman College. But the majority of them are picked up after the festival and donated. And then we can add other pianos throughout the year that are being painted. Uh, we donate them to schools and uh, nursing homes and uh, other organizations in need. So it's an ongoing effort. It's not just the festival. On average, we donate 50 pianos for peace to uh, organizations in need throughout Metro Atlanta. Thinking about nursing homes during the past two and a half years, in particular the isolation of people living in nursing homes and senior care. What has been the response to receiving the pianos from these senior health care facilities during the pandemic? The key word, like you mentioned, uh, Lewis, is isolation. The elderly in these uh, care facilities are lonely. When that colorful piano comes and they hear music, whether if it's a short hymn or a little song performed by one of our volunteer artists, even myself, I go. During the pandemic, unfortunately, we had to go virtual. 
and I didn't like it because it's not impactful. You're not there. But now we are back into like bedside performances. You know, music heals. You know, even when it has been proven medically, you know, people with Alzheimer's, uh, when they hear certain melodies, it, it, it brings back, it activates their, their memory, their, their brain. It is our way of, again, bringing the magic of music to the, to the people who need it the most and trying to, uh, you know, impact them positively and bring joy in our symphony for peace. Wednesday, September 21st is International Peace Day. What will the festival be doing on that day in particular? We do have a... Uh, uh, several concerts planned on the Beltline uh, throughout, you know, uh, Metro Atlanta. Originally, every year, our closing ceremony is on the 21st. But this year, we were asked to postpone it one additional day for Thursday, because Fulton County government, uh, they're coming on Thursdays. They are, you know, uh, working virtual and, you know, coming on Thursdays. So we had to postpone it one day. So we are celebrating on the 22nd. And that's our closing ceremony featuring the African-American Philharmonic Orchestra, the band. We have a couple of pianos on display in the government building of Fulton County. Everyone is invited to our Symphony for Peace featuring and uh, bringing unity and peace to our community. Malek Jandali, composer and founder of Pianos for Peace. The festival is underway and runs through September 22nd. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. The Southeast's largest and most active chamber music organization is celebrating its 30th anniversary. The Emory Chamber Music Society of Atlanta features world-class artists performing free concerts around the city. The opening program is this Saturday at the Schwartz Center for the Performing Arts. Pianist Will Ransom is the artistic director of the Emory Chamber Music Society. Here, he shares a few highlights of the season. All sorts of wonderful programs around the city will have special concerts at the Museum of Contemporary Art, featuring some of Atlanta's finest living composers. We'll also head out to the Bremen Museum and do music of Jewish composers as well. Some wonderful Mendelssohn, Gershwin, played by the Vegas String Quartet. We'll be at the Atlanta History Center doing music of earlier Atlanta composers, including Alfredo Barilli, the father of classical music in Atlanta. We'll also be at the High Museum, giving a program called, appropriately, Pictures at an Exhibition, where we have this wonderful string quintet arrangement of the great Mussorgsky masterpiece, and we'll play it right there in the atrium. The Emory Chamber Music Society also offers master classes, a family series, interdisciplinary classes, and more. All concerts on the Emory campus are free. A few of the concerts off campus require 
price of admission to those venues. You can find more information about the 30th anniversary season on their website, chambermusicsociety.emory.edu. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., comedians Mark Kendall and Bill Worley will tell us about their new podcast, Ridiculous News. Plus, the King Con and Barbecue Show is coming to the Earl this Saturday. And the one and only King Con will stop by to discuss their genre-defying sound. If you missed part of today's show, you can catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Troves. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram, and you can follow me on Twitter at LOIS. R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to W-A-B-E Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.